Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. My guest today is... Steve Pagan. And Steve, it's great to see you. And I love the backdrop you've got, which looks like it's a bunch of intellectuals sitting around sleeping, writing, reading, and smoking. It's it's from the Batista Syndrome, the uh, piece I did right before it, the, the new one in Cuba, which is about Cuba in the 50s. And one of the major issues was how do you kind of unravel the romanticism around Cuba in the 50s? So that's supposed to be at a version of the Tropicana as if it would be written by Eugene O'Neill. <laughs> well, that leads really well into my normal first question, which is what are you thinking about? But I want you to tell us about that project, if you could. Uh, which one? There's um, the one, the Batista Syndrome one, or the, yeah, there's a new the, one? the Batista Syndrome. Uh, the Batista Syndrome, um, it... Uh, you know, often the, often what I do grows out of being sort of, you know, a, a bit peeved at the way things are being put. And in a way, what I was, I mean, generally I'm curious about the way history is written. And of course, you know, in quotes, history belongs to the victors, blah, blah, blah. And in the Cuban situation, there seem to be three, in my mind, at least three closed closed versions of the 50s. One of which is the, you know, the general progressive one, in quotes, is the wonder and Jesus quality of the Sierra, the Sierra and Castro and how this was so, you know, so I was sort of, you know, going into the mountains and coming out like a, you know, like a prophet. Uh, the other story is the, you know, Miami story that this destroyed the ideal city in Cuba in the 50s was like sex, drugs and rock and roll. And the third is the kind of one more or less uh, I grew up in, which is the American version, which is basically sex, gambling, and uh, and party. And so I, I wanted to kind of, in a way, get off that story and and sort of uh, so in starting with a premise, just because you know it's sort of experimental work, so just see how you could break the story by taking pulling something out of it. So what I pulled out of it was the Sierra story. So it's a piece done in Cuba, which doesn't mention Castro's name about the 50s. And in, in fact, instead of uh, focusing on the Sierra, uh, uh, if there are the parts that are on the resistance tend to be about the resistance, which was super large in Havana in the 50s. For instance, in 57, I have lost track of most things because <laughs> of aging. But the number of people uh, that died in the resistance in Havana vis-a-vis -vis the Sierra, the numbers are outlandishly more so in Havana. And also in Havana, when all of this Godfather II, before Godfather II world is going on, there's a trillion bombs being blown up in Havana every single day. And and even at that time, the sort of more versions of the intelligentsia and the well-educated bourgeoisie architects, engineering, uh, many of them were already involved in the resistance. I mean, it's not usually told that way, but a lot of the, you know, strategy, like this wonderful advertising strategy that I'd given the piece is actually a proper strategy. All the bomb making was by these engineers. And in fact, also there's a party in, in the piece where all these cross figures, mafioso, appear at the same uh, party. So, uh, and I, one of the things that was, I guess, kind of surprising is, you know, most of the people working on the piece, uh, Cubans working on the piece, uh, they actually, that was the course, like, you know, if you were an American and you were being taught about Vietnam, it's the class you like. It's the class you went to sleep that didn't want to take. So no one wanted to take a class on the revolution. They, I didn't want to hear it. And so a lot of what I was told, they said, oh, this is great fun. We're learning all this stuff about Cuba in the 50s. Uh, and in fact, the one interesting film done about the similar topic, I forget the director, is a film called Clandestino, which is very well thought of in Havana. And that's something I, in quotes, dislike for another reason, because it, frames like something like reds or so many other things that frames the political events within incidental things that happen in a romance that's developed in it and in fact that movie 
which I hadn't seen until after the, the film was made, has two weird incidents that act, we are in both films. One is about the interruption of a baseball game in the early 50s, which leads to a cross-examination, why the person's angry that they interrupted a baseball game. And the other is a show. It was a very, very popular show that was similar to the um, show in America, Queen for a Day. Uh, so they have both those events in both films. But I mean, I think that basically the story of the events get buried under the incidentals of a romance. And, and many, many films, almost all films seem to, uh, all successful films <laughs> seem to uh, situate the uh, events within the frame of how it affects a romance. And you sought to do something different. I I didn't have to seek it. You know, it was kind of compulsive. Uh, I but I did I did have a point. Uh, I did it for a point. I didn't. You know, I I I don't. I mean, I I don't really like seek out to be. Something or else. I mean, I, I I really do take seriously the idea that it's an experiment and give it a go and try this opening, see what happens. Don't be afraid. It's not shouldn't be evaluated how you start the move, but how you end up the play. And so you could always evaluate that, you know, at a later stage of production. So uh, there is, you know, there is that uh, idea of risk experimentation and the understanding um, that you could sort of correct it in, you know, like I said, we'll, we'll fix it in post, we could fix it in narration or, or things like that. You know, so, so it's the idea that it will be shaped uh, at a later date. And the point is to get very good material. And then, so it has affect and then work on its organization and not be inherently have a, a list of can't do's. And can you tell us something about the people who were involved in the production? In, I, well, the core person is uh, someone you know well from when she got her PhD at NYU is Berta Hotar. Uh, was she's the was the over producer, and <laughs> I would say in a way, you know, Berta is. I would say first of all, she's you know super super smart, and she's you know she has a although she was raised across mostly in Mexico, her father was Cuban, and she has a Cuban passport, and a lot of her her research although much of her PhD research was about the exile community. She has a house in Cuba and has all the, you know, she's very involved. And I would always say in a way she was, uh, I always say like, you're really a horrible producer because you're really more of a union representative. (laughs) (laughs) She's always like arguing for, you know, making sure everyone gets paid enough and they're treated with integrity. And, um, you know, although Berta is quite, Interesting to have an intellectual debate on, with on the topics of decency. She doesn't argue. <laughs> she, you know, and so basically, what was done is there's a budget set, and basically how it's distributed is organized by Berta. And so, if she wants, if she thinks something should be paid this, or this person should have this, or this has to be done, you know, I, as long as it doesn't change the large number, uh, she runs that. And she organized a team of people that are actually more actively from the ground up involved, a producer, one producer who has lots of connections, and the other, which is very experienced line producer. So the team, in terms of of, uh, the project going well, uh, was conceived, and I was kind of you know, I carried around like Cleopatra and all, all that level of work was, was organized by the other people. But all, all the decisions, creative decisions, um, people were, uh, were you know, they sort of accepted those were mine and they respected my decisions. And Rene Aranchaboa, who was one of the producers, he actually knows really a lot about the 50s. So if he thought I was making some historical mistake, he would he would say, I think, I disagree, blah, blah, blah. So, um, so I, you know, so in lots of ways, the project, I was so happy to do that project uh, because I felt the production team I can organize behind the camera, in front of the camera, by any standard was superb. And of course, the the, uh, price point was so much lower. But irregardless of the price point, you have actors that are trained in experimental theater, and as opposed in where you work in New York, you just really are not going to find a lot of young people that have those type of backgrounds. 
and the education in cinema is uh, very high in the and um and so that production i think was sort of ideal the more recent one not so much because of changing circumstances in cuba um you know everybody unfortunately everybody who most people who have a level of skill that's uh you know negotiable abroad have left it's the, the level of expertise that has left the country is of a biblical level and and i'm going next week for the possibility of another production um, and very concerned whether I'll be able to uh, organize a production team um, that I'm happy enough with. Wow, wow. So there's a a culture drain. I'm afraid so. I'm, I'm not, you know, when I do the, I mean, I've done a lot of projects in Cuba, but mostly, you know, I did one in the 90s that actually was based on making contemporary cult. How do people talk about, the issues in Cuba, uh, but mostly they've been. I've been in like a bubble of a project, and only through osmosis, uh, through conversations on the set or going and looking for locations, do I get really get involved in um, even being aware of everyday problems. But people are coming to the set, like for instance, you know, you have to pick every single person up because otherwise you couldn't count on them through public transportation getting there. So everybody has to be picked up. And since you're in a normal shoot, you want your production people first and your actors later. You don't want to wear the actors out while they're setting up. The actors are there from the first. So actually, I, a lot of the script for Batista Syndrome was written chit-chatting with the actors and then, and then using what they said into the script. Like, for instance, one of the things I was very curious about was... Um, uh, I had done this other piece at, uh, at Fabrica, this multicultural uh, space in, in Havana. I had directed a project there. And then I was like literally only embedded in that space. And I always wonder, like, who were all these, you know, fancy dressed people and hobnobbing and drinking and moving around like this New York social life? Where were the, where were the resources that allowed them to be there? So I acted, asked one of the actresses, you know, I, you know, I really, you know, it really gets on my nervous fabric up. And how do these people make money like they had in contemporary Cuba? So she says, well, I could, I could tell you a story how they make money. So she, you know, actually then her story was included in the piece. It was her story. And she was an actor I brought back for the new piece, even though she is in exile and she moved to Spain because uh, she was so vibrant. Uh, Batista Bismarck, who's the Afro-Cuban actress, young Afro-Cuban actress in both pieces. And when I cast the Batista syndrome, I couldn't find, I wanted, I wanted an older actress for the part and she came and so I didn't have a part for her, but she auditioned and she was so good. I wrote whatever, I wrote the part for her on the spot and then developed it while we were waiting for the production team to line up. And in fact, one section uh, was done on the spot and I just gave her the guidelines uh, of she was objecting to Cabrera, what Cabrera Infante had written in uh, Three Trap Tigers. And so, I mean, she was given like four things to object and then she had to fill in the, the you know, the, the form of objecting. And she was like, you wouldn't have known she had never read the book or anything. And this is a multi-episode series, isn't it? It was, it was, in, I, I think, I, I think, of all the pieces I have ever done, it's the piece I probably like the most. And I, I think I failed at its fundamental, even though I failed at like the, the major point. The, and this you're probably much better at than you could have told me, you idiot. You should have known this before I did it. To do a series, the way the series works, they're like cliffhangers in the 20s or 30s. You have to end each episode with a tag that pulls you to the next section in, in, in a series. My piece, each of the sections have, you know, although there's kind of a development across the eight, they're not autonomous. I don't have that type of puller at the end of each of the sections. So for a long time, I eventually I'm really now more showing it as a single piece. That's two hours and 20 minutes long. Oh, are you? Okay. Because I guess I've, I've always thought of you and George Lucas as being peas in a pod. And of course, <laughs> his success with the Indiana Jones films when they began was based on a cliffhanger model from his experience yeah. of episodic serials 
as a well, child. I, 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 I should have talked to you about the topic before <laughs> before I started because I, I I mean I think they're all good the episodes but they're like punto they're like over and then there's another and another and they add up but there's no urgency of of uh, binge watching I, I I didn't produce the binge effect. Well, you know there are examples. The Saint TV show and The Man from Uncle TV show that had episodes shot as movie length and were screened outside, in the case of Saint, the UK, in the case of Man from Uncle, outside the US, in film theaters. So, you know, you're a, you're, you know, you're a bit behind Man from Uncle and The Saint. But <laughs> good job. So um, the next thing you did, I think, is 45 minutes from Edith Wharton. Yes, I, I, that's an interesting evolution, actually. I mean, they all sort of start somewhere and then they sort of work, you know, they have their follow the yellow brick road without those narrow yellow things to follow. They get a bit <laughs> of And so that started as, uh, you know, it's this sort of COVID piece. So I said, like, I, I'm like been in New York 12 years and like, I know nothing about New York in a certain level. So I said, I'm going to do something on New York. So this was supposed to be a thing on New York in the 70s. And there was a section on this uh, this, that's, you know, kind of half written on the Democratic Club in Brooklyn. There was like sort of Bed-Stuy was a it was a uh, gerrymandered district that every kept changing every two years in terms of the demographics of the of the population And, and both carry. And and who was then and Beam were both from that area and Beam was elected when he was from that area. And so I wanted to do something on the 70s in New York that would focus a bit on Beam that no one ever focuses on. And there's this wonderful story in the sort what year actually the story is, but it's about Studio 54. And it's an odd story because the story goes what a nice guy Roy Cohn was is the point because <laughs> <Of course. laughs> like you know Al Beam is like the loser nobody you know remembers who was the mayor and and Roy Cohn is you know a, a big studio 54 guy and Roy Cohn's the only one and comes and sits and talks to Al Beam at the table so there was going to be the section on the Democratic Club there was going to be a section which was about the sort of Prefania, El Santiago, Alegre uh, record label, which also had a, a record store. It was going to be on the record store, and some of that would be on the Cross Bronx Expressway. And then there was supposed to be a section on uh, this sort of idea of this sort of snotty origin of New York, um, sort of rich people on the Upper East Side. And when I started doing the research on that, I kept getting backdated and like, who are these people that they're talking about? Who are these core people? You know, it's not these people, you know, it's not Gloria Vanderbilt with like, you know, her name on the back of jeans, you know, who are these people? And so I, it actually traced all the way back to Edith Wharton, whose novel, uh, whose novel uh, Age of Innocence is precisely about this moment of New York before it became uh, the Gilded Age, when it was just this little small clique of provincial people with ugly brown brownstones. I mean, she thought New York was provincial and ugly and not sophisticated, and she wanted to show that New York of her childhood. She wrote it in 1920, but it's about the early 1970s when she was a girl. And whenever people think of Edith Wharton, including Martin Scorsese, they have this Pavlovian response that, yes, the Gilded Age. But her book is actually... Prior to that, when it was this little small click, right? So the small click became the thing I did. The age is, of innocence. Is there a theme in some of your work of puncturing received wisdom, questioning shibboleths, looking I think always, the, always, yeah, an alternative eye at history? Well, I only have one, so it better be in the right direction. Right, but I think this tendency <laughs> started when you when you when I first knew you, and you had two eyes. But, yeah, I think there's a tendency there. And the next one is talking of shibboleths, reiterating, I think, an old CBS newsroom claim that they would bring you news from nowhere, which uh, is also the title of a book about news gathering by Ed Epstein from the 70s, uh, whom I used to play tennis with, but who can't remember me, which 
obviously says something about my tennis. Well, the, it's, it, it's stolen from News from Nowhere, from William Morris' book about utopia. Right, right, right. But <laughs> that utopia became <laughs> CBS <laughs> Newsroom's claim for... I, I mean, no, the book, it's, it's, it's consciously stolen from, for, right. you know, for, from the William Morris uh, book, the title. So tell us about that. Well, I've actually done several projects based on this sort of trying to find some terra firma on this question of of utopia. Uh, Steve, can I ask you to keep keep going, keep talking? I'm going to disappear for a moment to manage the cat, who's proving a little difficult. <laughs> That's what they all say. <laughs> that we're going to come back. I'll be right back. <laughs> when you go go to Tahiti, send me a postcard, please. Don't touch that dial. <laughs> All right. Keep telling us about news from nowhere. Okay. To no one. Um, it's uh, 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 in a series of things I had done on the concept of utopia, which there are three projects. One I did for was uh, LACMA in Los Angeles, which was punctured utopias of the 20th century and dealt with their collections of uh, Bauhaus of Soviet constructivism in Hollywood. And that was done in in the guise of a Facebook uh, grammar and distributed through cell phones. Uh, then I did a piece on um, Clifford Odets and group theater and, you know, basically naming names uh, with Kazan and Odette in uh, the House on American Activities Committee. And this third piece was actually motivated by uh, a novel by uh, Leonardo Padura, who I think is Cuba's great novelist, and also actually did a series, um, uh, writes a series of detective stories about contemporary Havana, which actually HBO did uh, a series on. Um, and uh, uh, the the uh, the Padura book, The Man Who Loved Dogs, uh, I think it's just a wonderful, wonderful book, and it tells the. Uh, uh, it starts with the the assassin of Trotsky, who's from Barcelona, from Spain, uh, at least from Catalonia, uh, and uh, who uh, ended his life in Cuba, actually. And so it it starts with a Cuban um, meeting meeting uh, the assassin on the beach, and then uh, traces that story to the story of the assassin from Catalonia. Uh, and the Spanish Civil War, to the Soviet Union, to New York, to Mexico. And this sort of telling the story of the 20th century, I'd actually wanted to do that. And actually, I had put a, a script, as I have a script, into Padura, uh, but right before I did uh, Batista Syndrome. And Padura really liked what I did, but it, and he tried to have it happen, but there was a Hollywood company that was going to potentially do something on the book. And I just said, I can't be waiting for them because in the end, some Hollywood lawyer is going to say the only thing they ever say, they say it less expensively. No. And then more expensively, they say no. So I just sort of went to another project and I returned to that. And then this piece I did is a sort of offshoot of that, where there's a Cuban narrator that tries to trace the 20th century, but not just a sort of utopian socialist model, but also other notions of utopia, like America's fascination with technology, the uh, the belief in the future, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses. Uh, and so all of this is covered, not sort of in the form that an intelligent, uh, well-informed academic would do it, but in the form of another odd uh, sort of analogy to get it going was let's say if we treat it like the Big Bang Theory, that this just exploded, this utopian idea. And I'm, again, to try to at least come up with some popular cultural reference. I'm the first people in Star Trek. I'm exploring the universe that uh, occurred because of the Big Bang, which took all of these odd forms and surprises and holds from different perspectives. And I'm just trying to to gather all that so I have a, a, a some idea of like where we're standing and where we might go. And we other than I think to, you know, 
dump in with simply good intention, you're you're very likely to get buried in your wishing to fulfill the prototype of the original experiment that you're you know, had originally favored. So I wish to sort of step out of that problem into a total mess and try to sort of form some type of uh, mapping that would provide somewhere to stand on. Now, so I, I don't know that I wrestled the question to more than a draw, but, you know, <laughs> it was a, a noble, a noble uh, angel to wrestle with. Pisano and Odets are conventionally denounced on the left as rats because of their testimony. What's your take on them? I don't. The question doesn't interest me. Uh, the question is why? Why something happened? What were the organizing principles? What were the personal excuses? I'm more interested in understanding. I mean, in general, I think to be heroic is is noble. And to not be heroic is typical. And I, often I'm interested in, uh, you know, the person who's a conformist uh, or, you know, that more interesting. And there's a wonderful book by v Victor Novatsky, mm -hmm. uh, the former editor of The Nation. And I think it's absolutely wonderful book on, on, on the blacklist. And he, he it's a very inclusive book. And he goes through all the players historically and all the events historically and tries to like let you understand what they thought was at play. I mean, it sort of holds back judgment and really lays it out. And in fact, um, this friend of mine, Danny Simon, who's uh, uh, Seven Stories publisher, who's Annie Arnold's publisher, uh, he had seen the Odette's piece and really liked it. So I said, well, would you set up a screening in your office and invite Victor Novatsky to the screening. And because I really only I really cared what Victor Novatsky thought of the piece. Because I really I really worked hardest on the part about the testimony of Odette's and uh and Kazan. And and I pretty much like what I wrote about it. Uh and Victor Novatsky really liked my piece a lot and that really meant everything to me. And likewise, uh in a similar way, news from nowhere the one person I really cared what he thought about it was Leonardo Cadura, who wrote The Man Who Envied Dogs. And mm. I mean, he's really the only, I was like writing for him. And actually he, Berta in her tenacity, wisdom and and charm was able to uh, get Cadura uh, to write an article on, on, the, on the film. That, and Cadura just really liked the film and, uh, and that's again, I mean, whoever doesn't like it or whatever position people hold in my heart, that really matters the most. And he wrote a very, you know, intelligent, not like a review, but intelligent article relating the film. Engagement. Gato Pardo in, in Mexico City. So I was very, you know, for those pieces in my work, um, those are sort of whatever else happens around my work. I really, it really doesn't matter in that way. And, and my theory to justify my, so my sort of one, one spectator to a film model is, is I'm saying, well, this is a Brechtian model. This is like the good person Szechuan. As long as I find one good person on the planet, which will be very hard to find and will most likely be a very compromised person, I'll be happy. Someday I'll tell you my story about Kazan and Herb Schiller. Uh, well, and, yeah, well, I don't, uh, yeah, I, I, as I said, I am, uh, you know, it's, I think America, America is like unbelievably great. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, I, again, I'm, I, I think it's interesting to hear the story with all the complications and not looking at it as simply a justification, but part of an understanding to, to, to sort of, situate oneself and to understand the ground you're standing on. So definitely, for instance, news from nowhere, I would say this idea to explore the multiple directions and points of view around utopia is in a way the, on sort of Hyde Park speaker's corner, the box we all stand on. Mm -hmm. So it's not, it's, it's, it's the background that everybody talks from some variation of that story. Now, Going back, 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 as they say in baseball commentary. That's good, though, back, back, back. That's like, could be a home run. 
No, I was going to say, this utopia of the 20th century doesn't seem to have involved the Cubbies for some reason. I can't imagine why. Well, the, the only thing I grew up a Cub fan was, the only, other than that, you know, I know I, I watch all the soccer and I end up watching it with all these like wonderful Liverpool supporters, including people like Colin Robinson, who was like born and bred. And I'm to me, it's, you know, I don't feel that way. I feel like, oh, it's like going to a restaurant. You kind of like it. But if the restaurant gets lousy, you move on to another. But I was born and bred a Chicago Cubs fan. And as opposed to the New York fans, like the Mets fans I know are supposed to be losers. They're, you know, they want a dynasty like the Yankees. The Red Sox fans are like a bunch of Harvard people that think they deserve it. But us Cub fans are more like Millwall fans. You know, we're, we're lousy and we know it. So I just wanted them to win once in my lifetime. I didn't want a dynasty. And they won once. They won. I cried. I drank. Bottle Viv Clicquot, and that's it. I don't have any more fandom in me. So now that we have gone back, 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 <laughs> Tropicola. Yeah. Okay, Tropicola was a very different circumstance. I had, uh, at that time, the wonderful Bertel Tar for a very short period of time, she was, uh, we were, we lived together for a short period, and she had gone to Cuba to re, re to invigorate her life with her Cuban family in 91. And I went along with her in 92. And 92 was during the specials period. And Berta's family are not, not special Cubans. <laughs> you know, they, you know, work, work, like working in a hotel or work at a pizza parlor. And they live up on this, uh, on this hill in Casablanca, which the only, uh, and, it was there was nothing worked in Cuba except for the ferry between Maine and Vienna in Casablanca, and the, the amount of nothing people had, the dependence on Americans or foreigners going to a hotel and getting them something, their lives were really horrendous. And again, this is another story I didn't think the story had been understood by outsiders. So uh, again, you had these things when. Cubans would see a movie. They say, oh, I don't believe that movie. They're just a dissident and they're talking to international people. Oh, I don't believe that person. He's just a mouthpiece for the government. What do you expect that person to say? They're not going to say anything interesting. They're not morons. They don't want to get in trouble. So I wanted to make a film that, again, this broad specter of Cubans, including people in Miami, would think, oh, I might not agree, but that's perfect pitch. You know, that's what Cuba sounds like. And so I ended up going back to Cuba in 96 uh, uh, with a very different version of Cuba with uh, 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 this friend of mine, Greg Landau, who actually did the sound for the new piece. Greg Landau's father was Sal Landau, who uh, was very close with Castro, was a very famous documentary filmmaker and was adored in Cuba. Uh, Nina Menendez, her brother Pablo, lives in Cuba, her mother, Barbara Dane. There's a, a new movie on her mother, Nine Lives of Barbara Dane, uh, about her commitment to politics in Cuba. Nina had gone to high school in Cuba. So Nina went back with me as the producer, and I stayed in, uh, uh, what I say, a, a high-end cultural environment, you know, which is different. It's not like Hollywood, you know, but people have a car and, and you know, they travel abroad for their work. And so I was in a very different environment, and I was able, very lucky, because the situation had been that the actors' incomes compared to other people were really beginning to fall. And uh, if if this uh, something like Spain would be doing a movie in in Cuba, they'd go to ICAIC, the Film Institute, and let's say they'd get get five hundred dollars a day for the actor. The actor would get ten dollars. And so everybody in the Cuban cultural world was like, this is like wrong. So everyone was kind of complicit with, you know, okay, so if you're going to pay us $50 a day, you know, we'll do it. And since I had the support, Pablo Menendez's wife was, is Adria Santana, who's a very, very famous Cuban actress. And actually, Adria was in Spain. And so, but I was able to recruit these wonderful Cuban actors to be in this piece. And my camera person was Igor Vamos, who was at that point a student at UCSD and went on, he's one of the yes men, uh, and also did the Barbie Liberation piece uh, very early. And Igor is a wonderful person. And so I was thrown in the midst of having these people 
and in the midst of a music uh, uh, explosion of popular music, uh, timba, which was uh, which was this kind of groundswell music, which had very cynical lyrics, very anarchist lyrics, very critical lyrics, and was unbelievably popular. You know, astoundingly popular in a level of popular music like I don't know the you know equivalent to the Beatles. I mean, they were thought was so. And I was like thrown in the middle, and then I was sort of had to redo the entire idea because the first night I was taken to see these two groups at La Tropical, which is the major kind of uh, Afro-Cuban dance club outdoors. And the two groups were these groups, Bombaleo and Charanga Habanera, which uh, were amazingly vital and explosive. And I had to like redo the whole piece based on this music explosion and try to situate the actors in a way that they spoke in, you know, they spoke the truth. And the argument by the actors, who the central actors were all very high up in Cuban culture, they said, we can say anything we want as opposed to what people think if you ask us the right question. If you ask us what you think of the social policy of the da-da-da during this year, we can't answer that question. But if you ask us about how the elevator is working and why it's not working, we can answer that question because that question will lead to the revolution being better. So that's not counter-revolutionary to say we want something to be better. So I, you know, so everything was, well, ask this question, don't ask that question. We could do that. We can do that. And they actually loved the opportunity to uh, express themselves. And they were all very, Tiro Junco, Adria Santana, Mario Belmacete, they were all, one, very famous and all like super high IQ, had worked in experimental theater in East Germany with Heine Mueller, things like that. And uh, and they, so I was, we would rehearse in the morning, we'd work out, you know, what it would be, and then we'd shoot in the afternoon. And uh, they're wonderful. They're just, one. they are wonderful. And they were, they, you know, they felt, they really liked doing the project because it reminded them of their use. Mary Bowman said he was very angry because he had been farmed out to Venezuela to do telenovelas. <laughs> it's like, this is more interesting to me. Uh, and so uh, that was a very different piece. It was about capturing the moment uh, of, and again, a moment like everything's in transition. People forever are asking the question, you know, I want to, get Cuba before it changes. So I said, well, Cuba changes every hour, like everything else. You know, it's not like this, you know, you know, Brigadoon where you go and say, oh, yes, this is Cuba and it's going to do the same until it changes. So every time I've gone back to Cuba, it's been very different. I mean, when I did the theater piece, was brought in to do the theater piece at Fabrica, it was during this Obama explosion. And it just seemed that's the way it was going to go. And and it was a very different context that I did that in, but I was basically buried in, in the in the in the in the place where the the piece was done. I didn't uh, I didn't really I did went out to do some location things. So they're they're all so that's a that's a very different experience of Cuba, the Tropicola. Yeah. And going further back, Flaubert and Roussel. Well, I mean, I'd say the new piece has a resemblance to that because it has it has uh, the boxer kid Gavilan and the chess player Capablanca. It has to do with their imaginations in different places. And so the Flaubert and Roussel, uh, you know, sort of are these two people traveling to these made-up exotic places. Uh, that it's also uh, based on sort of something like an artificial criteria of, of producing, uh, uh, like the, the way it was written. Um, I, I, that's a, a very odd piece for me because, uh, uh, it's the piece, I, it's far, 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 far and away for someone that's thought of to be a very obscure person, me, that is like undoubtedly the most obscure thing I ever did. And, <laughs> and it's the piece that in terms of any professional credibility gained me the most. I got a job, a big time job because of the piece. You know, it got written about in October magazine. You know, people invited me to parties. <laughs> it was like it was very and and uh, I mean, it's it it was very odd like that. And uh, again, I was very fortunate who liked the piece. Uh, um, 
Uh, Danny Ollier, who uh, was partners with Rosalind Krauss, the edit- one of the editors of October, really, who was this sort of super expert on French literature, he loved the depiction of Flaubert and Roussel, and that helped drive the piece in terms of it being accepted. And once someone told me they were on a panel where my piece got a lot of you know money, National Endowment of the Arts grant, and they said... People watched it for 10 seconds where the actual beginning of the film says, I fucked him. <laughs> and then someone said, oh, this is really an intelligent piece. We have to give the person the money. <laughs> so it had this reputation for being very intelligent. But I think people basically watched 10 seconds of it. But uh, How intelligent was the machine that killed bad people? The question of the machine that killed bad people... Uh, it's the only thing I ever got right in the history of the world. You know, it's that it was, it, I watched between, I don't know, but after, between 86 and 88, when I saw this thing on TV, I was watching CNN and there was this Filipino uprising, this, uh, and, and it was very clear to me that this uprising was made for television, that everything done by the opposition was staged for TV. It was and it was staged for this international client state situation in relation to the Reagans. Uh, and I said, my, this is really interesting that politics take place as a TV event. It doesn't. That's what really it happens on the TV. If indeed the issue is about you're a client state like Tiananmen Square. China's not a client state. We're China. You're not. It doesn't matter. Uh, but but Philippines, it did matter. So I wanted to say I went on the idea what I would make is a CNN network that would be modeled, say, on a lot of the things done in the 30s on the newspaper. That I, I said, syntactically, this is really creative, the way it's organized, CNN. But semantically, it's really tedious and redundant. And so if I if I sort of pursue this radical syntax, like, like in the 30s, the newspaper, here's CNN, but change the semantics entirely, this could really be interesting. So the premise was to simulate a CNN network and deal with the ruptures between, say, the news and a commercial and a break for the weather and fill that with like creating this, you know, different version of this political event that happened. So it was meant to be a case study on the model of TV and revolution. And one sort of odd little bit I could point out. I, and this was, I was very lucky when I taught at UCSD and also when I taught at San Francisco State. They had super talented students like Igor Vamos, you know, being the camera person on, on Tropicola. Well, there was an undergraduate who really would do these films with all these little sets. And I chose her as the art director for um, The Machine to Kill Bad People. He was the set designer for Oppenheimer. Now, <laughs> that... A little undergraduate of UCSD is like, you know, she's like, whoa, big fan, big time set designer. Uh, so I've been very lucky across the board to have uh, the opportunity of this young talent. Uh, Exploiting to- University of California students as a tenured professor. What? So there's also, yeah. uh, I've got one more question to ask you, Steve, and then I'd like to throw it open to you to add or subtract, although I don't edit. So good luck subtracting. My question is about the book that came out about 20 years ago yeah. about your videos. It's a, it's a, it's, I wouldn't say it's about my videos. I mean, I, I think those books are really tedious, all this head geography on this one person. I mean, I think they have the opposite effect. You end up hating them by chapter three. So basically, I sort of tried to set it up um, to be kind of like the pieces that I invited uh, these friends of mine to write adjacent to it, like, you know, our mutual, wonderful, wonderful Citizen Ross, wonderful Andrew Ross. I, he actually set up his own network. <laughs> you know, it, he didn't like, he didn't write anything about me at all. You know, he just wrote about setting up a network. So I wanted things to have, oh, that reminds me I could do blah, blah, blah. So I wanted it to be a jumping off point for a lot of what was written. So it has layers of being these interviews and these jumping off points. A wonderful diary by Berto Hotar, who was producer camera person on Zero Degree Gratitude shot in um, Ecuador, uh, which is a commissioned PBS piece, actually, uh, on, on, the, on, the, on the 
what well, was on 1492 I did um that um and so and and I think Ken Wissinger, who is the, who lives in my building, actually, and Kathy Davidson watched from Chicago, his partner, and Kathy Davidson watched when the Cubs won the World Series. We watched it together over the bottom of the cup. Uh, no, so there was. It's more like a book that surrounds my piece, and there's some critical articles, some interviews, but there's a lot of, you know, just that reminds me of pieces. So the layering of the book. I like, and I think the people at Duke thought, like, okay, there's like all these Trinman Han, you know, all these and Andrew Ross, and all these people are writing for this, so it can't be on, can't be horrible. But I think I, I don't so sure they understood what was going on until the end, and then I think some of them said, um, "Wow, this actually turned out." You know, like, it was it was their attitude. So they were very generous, and I, I think they took it on, you know. On, you know, sort of on just sort of, you know, whatever happens, happens, uh, which uh, I think is uh, is uh, important. But uh, there is there is something I, w- I wanted to to uh, something that we haven't talked about a part of my whatever background I want to bring up hmm. is um, for around five years, I was the. So consultant and advising editor uh, to to a part of a foundation, the Howden Child Foundation out of San Diego. And Eloisa Howden Child had been, uh, is the uh, president of the Board of Insight, which is a cross-border art uh, event, which uh, includes a lot of intellectual dimensions. And when I was chair at UCSD, we did a lot of events with Insight, and I kind of became friends with Eloisa. And I, when, when I stopped being chair, a lot of people did talk to me, I feel, well, they're not going to be the head of the museum and this other person. They just cared because I was the chair. They're never going to want to talk to me again. And so I was always afraid to tell Elisa I wasn't the chair, even though we would laugh <laughs> and joke. And so finally, I told her I was no longer the chair. I like lied about it for like, six months. And she said, I am so happy. I hate working with institutions. I just like working with you. And so she says, why don't we set something up? So we set up a subdivision of her foundation called Spare Parts, where the criteria is we would commission pieces and the criteria for the pieces was, you know, different than other foundations. We would only fund pieces that no one in their right mind would fund. That was the criteria. We would work with them from the start and we would, you know, go wherever they go. And and so I always say, everyone wants to, you're the luckiest person in the world to, be working with this wonderful Eloisa Houdenshaw, which is true, because she also is a great producer. She was really valuable. And one of the projects uh, that really got out of control was this project that originally started with, I wanted to commission um, a, a commission between A.L. Weitzman and Waleed Rod. And so I uh, got, we got together in New York, uh, this uh, uh, wonderful former student now, who's now a proper kind of high-end TV director, Eliza Johnson, she's got us the uh, space at Brown in New York to to go there. And, you know, it was nice. We had steaks. We had single malt whiskeys. But this was not going anywhere as a project. And basically, Waleed's career was really accelerating. And plus, I think this was not something he was going to do. So I continued on with Ayal and flew to London. And I had read his, uh, the the, Hollowland book, and there's a chapter, I think, eight in it, where he talks about Gaza, and he talks about how, oh, it would, when before, when the Israelis were going to leave, he started a possibility of the Palestinians in Gaza taking over all of the property that Israel had had and refashioning it. And so, because Ayal is a really good spokesperson and really good at getting around, he got Ren Koolhaas involved. And as soon as Ren Koolhaas got involved, the Israelis burned down all the buildings. <laughs> they, they burned down all the buildings in Gaza and produced uh, not the first, but one among many um, catastrophes on the ground. So I went to IL in London and I said, what if we do the same thing as a theoretical project on the ground in the West Bank, where we would propose to people uh, this sort of project of what you would do with these Israeli buildings uh, when they left, how would you refashion them? 
And so we were, again, we were having nice meals. We were going to St. John's every day because they all then lived near St. John's. And his, his partner, Inez Weissman, is also super, super smart. So Inez pointed out, you idiots, you got to get some Palestinians involved in this project. So we, we got uh, uh, Sandy Hilal and Alessandro Petty, who had already basically been working on that topic, involved. Al got them involved. And the that project, imagining this other thing really took odd turns because uh, we get all the, they would get all these people involved. The discussions were super interesting. There was a class in Ramallah on the topic. The first, the students didn't even want, so we sort of burned those buildings down. We don't have anything to do with them. But then they said, oh no, we could do this and that. And so, so organically, I thought that project was really interesting. And the biggest problem with the problem is it became a big art world success. And so all of a sudden, instead of being this totally mobile thing that took whatever form, okay, well, these people on bird sanctuaries are interested in them. Okay, they're on the project. These other people are interested. They're on the project. So it was all this sort of organic growth that was producing this weird kind of mobile configuration that I found interesting as a as a utopian project on the ground that uh, um, was like in a real space and facing like actual issues. Uh, but the art world success became its life. And then it was just, in my mind, it was just another art world project. You know, it wasn't this other thing. Uh, and, uh, but working with them, working with Al and working with uh, Sandra, Sandra and uh, uh, it was great, great experience and fun for me. And they, you know, allowed me to be, I, I never withheld money from them or anything. And I would always argue with them. But in the end, whatever they wanted, they wanted. And all the ideas that were there were there. And I just was kind of this hectoring voice uh, and, until the project kept moving and moving and getting more money. And then sort of we were kind of, we sort of exited the project because it had grown past our ability to have any authority. But that was a wonderful experience for me, simply to uh, be a sort of plus one on the project. Beautiful. Well, Steve, thank you so much. We've known one another for something like 30 years. Uh, but this is the conversation I've enjoyed the most, other than <laughs> claims that Katanakio was not defensive, which is always my favorite conversation Topic we'll talk the, about the role of the fullback. Role of the fullback. Paketi <laughs> as... <laughs> so thank you very much. And I'd like to invite you back into the pod after the next project to talk about it, maybe with Jota, with Berta. And... No, I think Berta, I was thinking if, she, if she's going to ask anything really about how something gets produced in Cuba, you should ask Berta, not me. She does all the... She's yeah, been well, it'd be great to have you have her on, uh, but also maybe sometime uh, we could do a little roundtable with a few of you talking about stuff. Whatever. And I you, can, you I were, can invite were, some of the you, people. You, 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 were, you were gracious. You were very gracious, and I appreciate the... I'm glad you didn't ask me anything about cultural studies. <laughs> I wouldn't know what to say. Yeah, me, me too, uh, as... <laughs> Somebody might have said on Car 54, where are you? You know, my big disappointment when I moved to New York was I thought I would get off the plane and there would be people talking like the guys in Car 54, where are you? And I didn't meet them for years. Okay, thank you very much, Steve.